You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Hopefully, everybody had a great weekend. Uh, As for myself, I had an excellent weekend. Saturday was spent entirely with the family. We went to two farmers markets. We went to an outdoor festival. We ate food from uh, food trucks and vendors off the street. Absolutely amazing. Uh, We got ice cream. We went to parks and uh, my kids got to play. And then uh, everybody kind of crashed early last night. Or I shouldn't say last night. It was Saturday night. And... uh, that meant that daddy had to get all his stuff ready for the trip that he took yesterday, which was Sunday, down to my main hunting farm to set up trail cameras and uh, top off my mineral stations. I got a lot of work done as far as trail cameras were concerned on Sunday, so now all I have to do is wait and uh, hope that everything was set up right, and I and I remember to turn the switches to the on position uh, that, that that is one thing that pisses me off more than anything is if I forget to switch a trail camera to the off position or I keep it on the off position and I anyway got that set up and uh, so I'm I'm I don't know about you guys but trail cameras are one of my favorite things about what I do every year as far as hunting is concerned. And uh, I absolutely love checking trail cameras in the summer, watching the growth of these whitetails. Um, I used to be that guy who would come down, you know, once a week or once every two weeks and check trail cameras. Now that I got a family, and it's probably better that I I don't do that anymore to relieve some pressure because, you know, going in and out in some of these spots, you do bump some deer. And uh, I think that going to once a month, you know, putting in the right batteries, putting in some bigger SD cards, and letting the trail camera do what trail cameras are supposed to do, and uh, I think that uh, relieves a little bit of pressure from the area and, and actually helps me when it comes to the fall. So I got that done. Today, we are going to be listening to an interview that I did with a lady named 
Christy Titus. She is an outdoor enthusiast like the rest of us. She is an elk hunter. She's a mule deer hunter. She's an all-around hunter. She loves her guns. She loves to bow hunt. Uh, She was raised in the mountains, all this stuff. And I'm not going to talk too much more about it because this is another badass podcast from a badass woman. So uh, you're going to have to listen for yourself. But before we get into this podcast with Christy Titus, Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras has something to say about Velvet Fest. Yeah, so Velvet Fest is um, nothing too formal. It's kind of it's kind of a celebration, really. You know, Chad and I over the last couple of years have gotten so asphyxiated on the buildup to the season, you know, and planting food plots, hanging stands, cutting lanes, everything that we do. Trail cameras is kind of the only release that we get, you know, for these next three months of that addiction that we all have. So it's really that buildup. We're watching bucks. We're trying to figure out if, if the ones we were after last year are still alive and Velvet Fest, uh, the promotion we're doing is just kind of celebration of all that, a way for all of us uh, whitetail addicts to kind of stay in touch. So on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, really any social media outlet, if you tag your posts, um, pictures, videos, what have you, with the with the uh, tag Velvet Fest, then we are doing monthly and weekly giveaways of Exodus Trail cameras. Um, swag hats shirts um, decals uh, and lots of other gear that's up on our site as well as some other companies getting involved that uh, we're going to be giving away some really cool stuff and like I said it's just kind of a it's kind of a way to celebrate the build-up to another year and kind of the waiting game is is now upon us if you want to find out more information about Exodus Trail Cameras, be sure to visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com. And when posting any velvet pictures to social media, be sure to use the hashtag VelvetFest. And you'll be entered into a variety of different drawings and giveaways. So there's that. Now let's get into the podcast with Christy Titus. All right. On the phone with me now is Christy Titus. How's it going today, Christy? Man, I don't think I could be better. It's awesome. Life is great. Well, especially you just got off of the mountain, what, today or yesterday from a hunt? Yeah, yesterday. So yesterday. T- I've, been, I've been in the backcountry. It's been awesome. What have, you, what have you been chasing? I, you know, I was hunting bears, black bears in Hell's Canyon in Oregon, which is the deepest canyon in North America. And um, kind of unique backstory on that. My family, my dad's dad, my grandpa, his mother, my great grandmother, ran the what the ferry across the Snake River there, um, and which is now where the Hell's Canyon Dam is. So my family dates back to Hell's Canyon to the late 1800s, early 1900s, and my dad, my grandpa grew up in Hell's Canyon. So it's a place my dad is really, really nostalgic about and loves to go. And we've been trying to get out and do this bear hunt again. I, I haven't been there in 12 years. And um, we just finally got it worked out to go. And so it was just, it was just an awesome trip with my dad. We have mules and it was just spectacular DIY bear hunting. I didn't get a bear, but that wasn't why we were going. You know, the whole point was my dad and I having this great adventure and it was awesome. So, uh, it was all on public ground. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Public land DIY. Um, you know, where the bears we've taken in the past, they just weren't in their normal spots. (laughs) 
And it was kind of a quick trip where I kind of anticipated them being where they normally are. And that just didn't really work out. And, you know, when I figured out where the bears were, by the time we pick up and move camp, it's such expansive, big country. Like it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around the magnitude of the sheer enormity of Hell's Canyon until you've experienced it. And, you know, by the time we really figured out where we needed to be and whatnot, like I literally ran out of season just because I, I couldn't get there earlier in the month. And really, you know, we, when we normally go in, we go in for a couple of weeks and this was a, you know, a five day trip. So it was just a little bit shy on time, but we had a remarkable trip nonetheless. Yeah. All of our mules were great. No pack string issues. My horse fell off the trail one time and thank the good Lord himself. It was in a spot that it wasn't a thousand vertical feet drop where the trail had washed out and there was heavy brush over it. And he didn't see and, and he stepped his foot down expecting the trail to be there and it was gone. And, and uh, I'm lucky he didn't break a leg and I'm lucky I stayed on. And it was just, it was just one of those lucky spots. Cause there's some spots in house Canyon. You fall and you're a goner. You're so a goner. it was, other than that, it was a great trip. Well, I tell you, um, talking about, you know, you mentioned how, it, you know, expansive and big it is. I'm from Iowa. So mm-hmm. it, yeah, we can see a long ways, but it's not yeah. up and down. And I, mm. this past year was my very first, uh, I guess you want to call it Western trip. I was hunting elk in Idaho and yeah. uh, <laughs> I had a rude awakening, not only from, I thought my conditioning was good to the, uh, the altitude difference. So it made, uh, yeah. life as a flatlander a little more difficult. Well, when you're going around a hill or a mountain and you have a thousand to 2000 vertical feet over your left or right shoulder and you're on a four legged creature that has its own mind, (laughs) you have to have a lot of trust in an animal and it's, it's a definite, um, have you ever paraglided before? I have not. Okay. Well, those of you that are listening that have ever paraglided, there are parts of Hell's Canyon when you're on a horse, when you look either over your right or left shoulder, depending on where the drop off is, you have the same almost sensation as paragliding because you're so high up and you're literally dangling over the edge. It almost has that same feeling of paragliding. It's really, really incredible. Um, very unique experience as far as a horse pack trip. Like, you know, it's hard to replicate that sensation of paragliding and it, it almost gets you there. It's so high um, in some spots. It's pretty cool. So is there, is there enough land, like, I guess, flat land there to set up a camp? That's a, that's one of the main problems that we have going in there is, um, <laughs> number one, we have to have resources for the mules. So we have to feed and water. Feed is not the issue, but water is. So you get in these big drainages where there's water and there's literally nowhere to set up a tent. So there would be, in, in where we went, our final destination was a two-day ride because you have to camp there's limited places you could camp. It's flat enough to even set up a tent and also have water. Um, so it's, it's a challenge. You have to almost know where you're going. Um, or else you're, you know, you can look at a map and be like, oh, I'm just going to camp there when I get tired. Well, it's not really the, <laughs> not the way it works. Um, it's, it's really, really steep and really rough. So, um, yeah, no, it's not easy to find a camping spot. So, um, in regards to this kind of trip, you know, I, I went to your website before, um, you know, before this interview and did a little research, but it sounds like, mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, mules and horses, you kind of cut your teeth on that. You were raised hunting that way. Um, so yeah. why don't we just start at the very beginning and uh, talk a little bit about, you know, how you cut your teeth in hunting, who started you, who got you involved and, uh, and kind of we'll go from there. Well, I have an older sister and, um, and me. And so my dad did not have sons. So I am my father's son. Ah, lucky him. (laughs) 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 I, uh, poor guy. I actually feel sorry for him. I think I'm worse than a son. (laughs) I'm definitely more of a handful. Um, but he started taking me and my sister and my mom when, when we were little kids, we never went to Disneyland. We never went like these normal vacations that, you know, mainstream America do. We never did. So I would be two years old and I would ride on the front of my dad's saddle and fall asleep on the back of a mule. And my sister, when I was a kid, she wasn't as into the mules. She didn't really like them. She really had a hard time with them. She didn't handle them well. They She got bucked off all the time. And there's just some people that are really naturally good with livestock. And there's some people that are just horrible with livestock. And my sister was one of those kids that was just horrible with livestock. So she would often go, you know, with my grandparents and I would go in with my mom and my dad. And my mom is more like my sister. She's not as into the mules and not as into the backcountry stuff. And so primarily it turned into something that my dad and I did together and still do. Um, you know, my dad's taught me everything I know. And, you know, he, my dad's a tough guy. Um, to this day, he's pretty tough. Like I was kind of feeling sorry for my mule. He got a little sore on him and my horse, you know, when he fell, um, off that trail, he skinned up his hind legs pretty good. And, you know, I'm kind of a bleeding heart and I'm like, Oh man, my poor horse, my poor mule, you know, they're a little bunged up. And my dad's a rough guy and he's like, Oh, they're going to live as long as <laughs> their heart. And you know, like that's just how I grew up. Like if I was hurt, or knocked down, or something happened, and I had a, huff, a tough go in the woods, or whatever, my dad was like, pick it up, suck it up, you're not going to die, figure it out. Rub and some dirt on he, it. Yeah, rub some dirt on it, spit on it, you know, whatever you got to do, like, that was just how I grew up, so I'm kind of a rough girl um, in that regard, a little uh, ragged around the edges, if you will, but, you know, with him treating me like that, it wasn't a matter of, uh, we, you know, with anything I wanted to do, it wasn't a matter of, you know, if I could do it, it's just learning the skills to get it done. And he was, I'm super independent, obviously. And so I would not want my dad's help. And he would let me struggle until I was willing to be receptive to listening to him. And then he'd show me what I needed to learn. And then I'd continue on. And I'm still that way, you know, on this trip, um, he, he's older, he's in his sixties and he wore out a little faster than me. And and uh, I had a health canyon alone most of the week and I'd walk into camp hour after dark um and i it, it's such big expansive land you almost don't even need a map if that makes sense <laughs> like if you have any type of wilderness experience like you're you, you can recognize drainages and you're probably not going to get lost but um i'd roll into camp an hour after dark and and his buddy would be kind of worried about me and my dad's <laughs> like yeah she's fine <laughs> but you'll, that's you'll make just, it that's don't live. She's not going to die. She has everything she needs. If she sleeps on the mountain, gets turned around, she'll make it here in the morning. You know, what? You know, it's just that. It's just always been like that with me. So when you're, you know, as a kid, you're growing up, and and it's a little different here. You know, if if I if I fall or my I take my daughter out and uh, we go to check a trail camera or we go shed hunting or something like that, and she falls down, she's not going to fall a thousand feet. 
was, Mm-mm. you know, you know, your dad kind of let you be Miss Independent for a little while before he ended up stepping in on, on some of those occasions. But what what did your dad teach you, not only about safety up in the mountains, but about maybe, you know, when it comes to chasing game, what to look for, how to hunt, you know, not just take you hunting, but teach you how to hunt. Well, and so this is what I always tell parents. It's really important. And, and not even just as a parent. To a child, this could be to a new young man that hunts or a young woman that hunts or, heck, my grandma wants to start hunting. This can be, is it applicable to everybody? So if you want to teach somebody to hunt, don't just take them hunting and expect them to follow you around and you make all the decisions and you do all the thinking. That's a horrible mistake. When you take someone hunting, it's really important if you want them to really understand what's going on and actually become a hunter themselves, you have to let them take the lead. So what my dad would do when I was younger is he would make me go out front. And my dad has a hearing impairment. So what ended up happening for us is that I had to go first because he would walk faster than me and would blow through opportunities because he couldn't hear maybe elk mewing or, um, you know, small things like their legs as they go through the grass, that little wispy sound the elk make. And he wouldn't hear those little things and he would blow through opportunities. And so I really started to take the lead as the ears of our hunting operation because of his impairment. And so in doing that, I got, it bolstered a lot of confidence for me, but it also taught me hunting strategy. So like, you know, the elk are above us, and it's in the afternoon and the wind is blowing up. So I don't want to just run underneath them because they're going to smell me and I'm never going to see them. So I learned, okay, well, if I, I, the wind is going up and they're above me, I got to get on the next ridge over, get above them and then come down on them. And so you learn all of the strategizing and why you do things the way you do things when you're hunting and taking the lead, you know, as a novice is important under the description the supervision of somebody that knows what they're doing or has more experience because then you can coach them and be like, no, this is a bad idea. Let's think about this. You know, why, why, how can we approach the situation better and teach them and let them have those aha moments where they're like, oh yeah, you know what? You're right. Then a year down the road, two years down the road, six months down the road, however long that time frame is when they're wanting to be more independent hunters, they have the skills to be successful and they have the confidence because they have you in their head walking them through everything and some experience under the supervision of someone to have the confidence to, to walk into camp an hour after dark. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's where we want to go. Yeah. Makes sense. So mm-hmm. as you started growing up and hunting, were there times where your dad let you go out by yourself or you were, you know, or maybe not let you, but you became old enough to go out hunting by yourself or, or were you always kind of with a buddy or your dad? No, when I was younger, you know, high school age and stuff, I was hunted with my dad. When I got to my twenties, um, my dad works and I didn't always have a hunting partner and where, where it really started for me and this kind of started leading into me having a career in the outdoors as I was volunteering um, for an SCI chapter, which I ended up being on the board, and then I was vice president, and then I was president. I went to Washington, D.C., and I lobbied with SCI. And so I have deep roots in conservation. My, my roots in RMEF go back to 
my family being a member since 1986, you know, so I've always had this conservation background, but I wanted to learn more in my twenties. And because I was involved in SDI, what I started doing locally is I would organize experts to come in to teach about GPS navigation. Uh, I had an expert come in uh, called Peter Kummerfeldt. He's got some survival books and I had him come in and teach survival seminars where I had experts come in and teach uh, women's pistol training days at the range. And because I wanted to learn more, I just started organizing community events around that, which really unbeknownst to me was kind of the platform that I built my career on. Um, and from there, you know, once I got more confidence in utilizing a GPS survival in emergency situations, in my 20s, I started hunting alone, and I hunt alone now all the time. I mean, I don't even think about it anymore. Okay. Now, for me, and this is kind of how I got into, into hunting, so I would, I would, when I was younger, I'd go out with my mom or, uh, you know, my stepdad, and we would go and we would you know, hunt in the woods. And, uh, it was kind of a family affair. I was really into it back then, but then mm -hmm. as I got into, you know, sports and, you know, the social part of school, you know, middle school and, and, uh, high school hunting kind of took a little bit of a backseat. How, how was that for you? Did hunting remain the focus in your life back then? Or did, did it kind of take a backseat like it did with me? No, for sure. I think it took a little bit of a backseat, but what happened for me, that backseat was pretty brief. And when I was um, 18, we still have this mule. His name is Hank. He's a big red mule. If you go on my Facebook, you can see pictures of him. We just drug him through Hell's Canyon. When I was 18, Hank was four. And um, I broke up with my high school boyfriend of two years, and it was kind of sad. And, you know, I had planned on going to university of Hawaii and that didn't work out for me. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like what am I going to do? And <laughs> so I, I enrolled in community college and I started doing that, but I took Hank that red mule and I started taking horseback riding lessons on him because he had had some professional training and I ended up buying a horse and got a little bit more involved in horses because leading up to that, I only had mules. So Hank, that big red mule, um, was a big part of me getting kind of back into the mules more seriously and, um, and riding a lot more, you know, more, more so even than when I was a little kid with my dad. Cause then I started doing like, I mean, I was had a professional trainer. I trained with a few days a week and took lessons with and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, it's interesting. There's people in our lives that really change them. And there's, um, there's animals that I think that really can change your life too. And Hank, Hank was, was an animal that really changed my life. And my other mule, Otis, he's the little, he's not little, he's the giant mule in those photos that has the spots. He's an Appaloosa. Um, in my late twenties, I wanted to have a baby. And so I had Otis. Ha <laughs> 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 I think I was 27 when I had him. He's eight now. And, um, so he's my, I call him baby, my baby mule is because I, instead of having children, I had Otis and <laughs> like, now I have him. So it's kind of funny, but all of our mules and stuff we've had either since they were born, like Otis was born at my house or they were, um, Hank was six months old when he got, we got him and the other two, my horse and the black mule, we got his yearlings, but 
I, again, I pulled away from that for a brief time, but I think if parents give kids a solid foundation in something, there'll be a moment in their life where they may get a little lost or not really sure where they're going as adults or as they're kind of shaping into humans, if you will, um, they'll revert back to their roots. And I really did. And, and for me, you know, my animals have been just a tremendous part of who I am my entire life and still are. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that you mentioned that because in I I cannonballed into um, bow hunting in 2006, and it was it, earlier in the year, late in 2005, and I kind of had a little bit of a similar uh, scenario where the girl that I was in a long-term relationship and I broke up. My job got outsourced to a different country, so I had mm -hmm. I didn't have a job. Then I had to sell my house and I had to move back in with my parents. All that happened in like a four-month period, and I, I that's when I jumped into the bow hunting and outdoors and mm -hmm. it's been hardcore for, you know full throttle ever since then so in a, in a in a little way you know that's uh, a little bit similar to what uh to to what you went through well this is what's super funny is i actually got my dad into bow hunting okay so i was dating a guy um i was engaged to a guy in my 20s early 20s and uh we never did end up getting married um, we're still tremendous friends, but he got me into bow hunting and then we pulled my dad into bow hunting. And so my dad and I have been prior to that, we're always rifle hunters and, and I'm really the one who got my dad into bow hunting. So it's kind of cool to be able to tell that story of, yeah, I introduced my dad into bow hunting and <laughs> it's pretty cool, you know, so pretty fun to, to lead him that direction. So I, I do have a little bit of a question for you, and this might be uh, towards strategy, whether it's, you know, you're talking about mule deer or you're talking about, uh, and this is kind of a complete switch from the conversation, but it just popped into my head. So we're going to talk about it, but, right on. Uh, but hunting with a rifle, as opposed to hunting with a bow, what are some of the, especially out West in the mountains, what are some of the similarities? And then what are some of the, the differences when it comes to those two different weapons as far as strategy is concerned? I, I they're the same for me. I mean, I, I always try to get as close as I can to an animal. Um, the strategy, you know, when I'm bow hunting for elk, I mean, I, I really rely on pattern early season like that for me, opening weekend and stuff with a bow is all patterns for mule deer and elk. And then it goes into like more rut vocalization, calling strategies. But regardless, it's all in whether you're hunting with a bow or a rifle, you have to figure out what they're eating, where they're sleeping, where they're drinking water. Um, and once you put those things together and you can figure out what the animal is doing, you can hunt them, right? You know, so they're one and the same. It's just one you have to be a lot closer <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know? right. So, and, and even with a rifle, um, you know, as the season progresses and animals get educated, they get harder to get closer to, which is, which is why a rifle, you know, is, is a nice tool. Um, but I, man, I'm a gun nut. So, um, I love shooting guns. I love training with guns. I'm an NRA instructor and I like pry my gun out of my hand someday. Good luck. But I also love bow hunting, and, and I really love bow hunting elk just because I thrive on the intimacy of the encounter that the rut affords a hunter um, right. during that time of year. It's just unbelievable. Right. I cannot 
you know, I, I watch a lot of those uh, television shows or online shows and, you know, got those encounters where the elk comes to about five yards and is screaming. Mm-hmm. That's all I want. That's I don't even care if I, mm-hmm. I kill. Someday I want to experience that. And that to me, then I can I can put that in my books and say, hey, check. I can check that box. Now, when it comes to um, when it comes to what was I going to say here? Oh, I want to go back um, as to, you know, as far as, you know, hunting as uh, when you were with your dad. Did you did you start out with elk and mule deer or or elk first or mule deer first? Or was it kind of, uh, hey, it's elk season. We're going to hunt elk. Then it's mule deer season and we're going to hunt mule deer. I actually started with rabbits. Rabbit. <laughs> uh, rabbit hunting. So my dad had this tradition where we would go rabbit hunting on New Year's every year in Eastern Oregon in the snow. And so, uh, yeah, my first hunts were rabbit hunts, but the hunt, I mean, I hunted deer with my dad. The thing for me with hunting, it didn't matter to me what we were hunting. I just wanted to be on my mule. Like I loved the mules. So I would go all day long with my dad and my dad is a, um, how do I want to put this? My dad, I call it death marches. <clears throat> my dad loves the death march hunt. Okay. And I really had to teach my dad to sit down and glass and not just, he calls it, um, bumbling into animals. <laughs> <laughs> so like that was his strategy as a kid for me was bumbling and he wanted to cover lots of miles. And so I didn't really care what we did as long as I was on a mule. So he kind of had his, he kind of had his, Hey, I got a, I got an area we need to get to and we're going full bore until we get to it. Or yeah, we, I mean, we'd ride around on the mules and look and ride and look, but I think bottom line for him, like hunting when I was a kid, it seemed like it was more of like the experience than you know what I mean? Like yeah. he he was a hunter and he hunted, but it wasn't just about killing. And even to this day, it's not like we went to Hell's Canyon and the guy told us where there was a giant bear before we were even packed in. And my dad's like, ah, we don't want to go after that bear. It's going to ruin our pack trip. <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, dad, we'll, we'll go do the pack trip. We didn't get a bear. If we would have gone where the guy said there was bears, we would have got one, but it would have ruined our trip. And so my dad's still that way a lot. Like, yeah. He's the experienced guy, but, um, my dad, when I was little, I remember, and this is so funny. I love telling this story. He would put in VHS cassette tapes into our VCR and sit in our living room and watch these men on TV calling elk. And he had bugles and these rubber band cow calls and his like veins in his neck would pop out when he was bugling and his <laughs> belly would jiggle like Santa Claus and. It was like, oh my gosh, this is so horrible. I'm, so, I was so glad that we lived in the country as a kid because it was embarrassing to me, you know, like watching him do it. I was like, oh my gosh. But when I was 13, he took me. To, we packed into the wilderness and overturned in Idaho, and um, it was a brutal pack trip, super, super deep in the backcountry. I mean, all the stuff we're doing is DIY, right? Like, never been guided, never been outfitted in my whole life um, until I got older. Um, and he called in the first bull I ever saw called in, I was 13 and it was a, he called in a spike and then he called in a big five by five and he shot it with his rifle at like 35 yards. And 
once I saw that you could actually talk to elk and hunt them, it changed my life. Like I was hooked. So elk has been, you know, not only my parents members of RMEF since 86, elk hunting has been the forefront and driving passion behind my hunting or desire to hunt since I was 13 years old. Nice. So, you know, that's just the way it is for me. It always has been. So let's talk about your very first elk you ever, you ever shot. Was it a, was it a, a, a bull or was it a, a cow? I shot, my first elk was a cow elk. Okay. And that hunt changed my life. Big time. Tell us about it. So I was a fat kid. I was a fat kid. And I tell people <laughs> this, I was overweight. I'm not an athlete in any way, shape, or form. I'm a really big wannabe athlete, and I've done some bodybuilding competitions, but I have to work really hard at being fit. It doesn't come easy, and it's not natural for me. I'm not coordinated. I could not have been a cheerleader. Like, not happening. But that's why I loved mules and hunting, because I didn't have to be Barbie. You know, I could be me and uncoordinated, and I could still be a good hunter. And when I was 16, I went on a... 15 or 16, <clears throat> I was cow elk hunting with my dad and we were in the bottom of this canyon in Oregon and it was horrible. And it's, I call it a hole because it's absolutely a hole. And we went down there one day and I didn't get an elk and I walked out and it was literally everything I could do to, to drag my derriere out of that hole. Like it was horrible and I wanted to die. And the next day my dad wanted to go back down in there because he spotted um, four cow elk in the bottom. And I didn't want to go. And my dad kept going and looking over the edge and going and looking over the edge. And he's like, you know, that's where the elk are. And we don't go in there. You're not going to get one. And, you know, like for me, if somebody says you're not going to do something, then game on, you know? Right. So um, we went down in there and I got my first cow. And it it, it was just point of like, okay, am I just going to be this fat girl forever that can't do anything or am I going to get it together? And I, um, I started working out and I'm still not a small girl by any means, like, but I'm strong and I can pack 70 pounds for 15 days straight on a sheep hunt. And I run six miles a day. Um, I'm just not designed to be tiny, but I've learned to embrace the fact that I am strong and, and, and hunting through that out of me. But I realized because of that cow hunt that I had to change my lifestyle as an adult. And it, it changed my whole life, you know, at that young age. So did you have a mule to help you pack that out of there or did you have to pack oh, that yeah. out on your back? Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. I've never packed anything out on my back. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no way. <laughs> no, I mean, there are a couple instances, like I shot a bear in Idaho, I packed it out on my back with Rocky Jacobson on a, a DIY deal, and I packed a tar off a mountain in New Zealand, and I mean, I've packed some animals out on my back, but if I don't have to, no, I go get a mule, and that is just not happening. That's why God invented mules, right? That's why I pay for the darn thing <laughs> 12 months out of the year. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> But I mean, I, and that's one of the things too, is when I got in my late twenties, I hadn't done a lot of backpack hunting, um, because I've always hunted with mules and I called my buddy, Brian Martin up, who's done darn near a hundred extended stay backpack sheep hunts, good friend of mine. And I said, Brian, 
I suck at backpacking. And he said, you're right, you do. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks. Um, so he and I spent a couple of days talking about gear and I made a huge financial investment in gear because backpack gear is very, very expensive. And um, I've actually been doing a lot more backpack hunting now than, than I even do with the mules. Um, I've had kind of a little switch in my, my hunting career, but um, I love backpack hunting now. Um, the mobility of it, the freedom of it, the lack of responsibility is fabulous. The, the mules bring a lot of responsibility. Yeah. So the other portion of my podcast uh, is gear related. So I have different series. Mm -hmm. this, this is the hunter profile. What, when you said you made um, a big investment in gear, what kind of gear did you invest in? Okay. So for instance, this last week, my dad needed a new tent. Our tent was like 30 years old. So I told him, I said, you go on Cabela's, you pick whatever tent you want. He picks a six-man, 26-pound <laughs> tent. We have a roller table inside. We have cots. We've got a big burner stove. We've got lanterns. I mean, we've got, like, this deluxe camp. My dog has his own bed. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just like to the nine solar shower, you know, <laughs> like that's the mentality of my dad. And that's what I was raised with. And when you start backpack hunting, everything becomes, you know, weight critical. And, um, you know, I had to go from thinking in terms of 26 pound tents to three pound tents, right? you know, four pound tents, one pound sleeping bags instead of sleeping bags. You know, I mean, you right. can go to Walmart and buy these big old sleeping bags that aren't warm and weigh 10 pounds, you know. Um, so I had to really look at gear, um, hydrophobic down sleeping bags versus Primaloft sleeping bags. What the trade-off is with the technologies and climate and, um, you know, buying these ultralight one-pound tents that are two-season tents versus, you know, getting a three-pound Hilleberg tent that's a four-season tent and, and, you know, what the trade-off is, plus and minuses. And, and I did my first backpack sheep hunt with a, a big Agnes tent, which is a great lightweight tent if you're in the timber. But there was one night we were at Alpine and had 30-mile-an-hour 30, 30 sustained winds. And if Ida had to stay up there in the big Agnes, Chrissy wouldn't have had a tent. <laughs> it wouldn't have dealt with that. Um, luckily, we were able to get in the timber and out of the wind. And so... I've, you know, I own a Hilleberg tent now. I own two of them and, and I've invested in really high quality, durable stuff that, you know, 30 years from now, I'm still going to have my Hilleberg tent. Yeah. I spent $600 on it, but if I get it Alpine and I have a 30 or 40 mile an hour wind, or if it dumps six into the snow, I'm going to wake up and my tent's going to survive it, you know? Right. Um, which means I'm going to be comfortable. And so I just had to look at things differently. You know, it's a whole going from horse packing where you have, you know, less weight limitations to, you know, if you're going to pack it in, it's going to be on your back. You have to pay a lot of attention to that, you know? So, so you've been hunting for a while. Um, you've, you know, been on some crazy hunts, you know, sheep hunts are never easy. You know, you're up in the mountains no. chasing mule deer and, uh, and elk. Have you ever had, uh, I don't want to say, yeah, I'll say it like a, a close to death encounter or, uh, the mother nature was beating the piss out of you. So it was like, Hey man, oh, we, sure. we, we got to get off the mountain type of deal. 
Yeah, you know, I'm really dumb sometimes, and I'm also hard-headed. Um, and so I took, I was filming a blog for Realtree. I don't know, this is forever ago. Um, not 10 years ago, but in that range. And um, I took myself, in, I was riding a mule, and I packed two mules in cross-country, and I was hunting black bear. And I was high elevation, and there was a forest fire below me. And um, it was caused by lightning. So there was also rain and thunder and lightning. And I self-filmed this whole experience um, of me packing the mules and packing in, setting up camp, trying to get a bear. Actually, I was trying to predator call a bear, of, you know, of, of all thought trains. I thought that would be smart as well. Um, and I called my dad and I'm like, hey, I got this fire below me. It's thunder and lightning and raining and so we had, my dad and I sat on the phone and I'm by myself. I'm responsible for these three live animals. And we came up with like an evacuation plan. Like he's like, well, if the fire starts ripping, he goes, you need to go down below where it's been logged. It was a private ranch below me. And there's lots of road access. You know, he's like, get on one of those roads and walk it out. You know, if there's a fire and if the if the old growth where I was at starts to blow over in this windstorm, he goes, you need to get out in that meadow. And I had been to Peter Comerfeld's survival seminar, and I had this big orange bag that would serve basically as an instant shelter. So if I had to get out in that meadow to get away from trees falling, I could get out there and still be dry. And so that was probably like as far as, you know, perspective of cred, this is out of my control and kind of scary. That would be it for me. Gotcha. All right. Another scenario here. I want to talk about maybe one of the most, you know, the most memorable hunts you've ever been on. Let's say, at, you know, as you started hunting by yourself a little bit more, um, do you have any hunts that really stand out, whether it was maybe absolutely a very first bow kill or anything like that? So <laughs> my dad and I were archery hunting and the day before the last day of season, there was this little spike bowl that we saw like every day for like a week and we didn't shoot it and didn't shoot it. And the day before last day of season, he was standing there and my dad shot him. I mean, he was like, all right, we're going to, I'm going to fill the freezer. So he shoots this bowl. And the next day was the last day of season and I wanted to hunt. And my dad's like, look, just go into the big meadow yeah, and try to get on. The, there's a herd that I had patterned that would go through there every morning. It, they don't do that anymore. Their pattern has changed. But at the time, they'd go through there every morning. If I was there by 6.30 in the morning, I could cut them off. So I, I was going to go in, and the deal was my dad was going to meet me at 11 a.m., and then we'd pack out his bowl that afternoon, and that way I'd get a full morning hunt in. And this was the first time I had walked in that far by myself. And so I remember walking in and thinking, okay, if I sit down right now in however many hours my dad's going to be here with the mules and I'm okay. And that thought process just kept me going. And I sat in the meadow when I finally got there, I'd missed the herd, but I called in my first branch bull by myself. And I was so excited. This five by five bull came in 45 yards. I was so excited. It didn't even draw my bow. Like, I was like, oh, crud, that, like, worked, and wow, and 
my competency at that point, 45 yards was a little bit of a stretch for me. Now it wouldn't be an issue, but bows were slower then. And I hadn't had the experience with archery equipment the way I have the experience now. So, you know, I always tell people you need to know your limitations. And for me, for me, it was just a little out of my limitations. and, And I was just so jacked up. I didn't draw. But the point was that I called in my first branch bull by myself, and it was awesome, right? So right. the next year, I dreamt about that bull, and I dreamt about that moment and had I done things different and all this stuff, you know. And one year later, um, the next season, I took my dad in. It was uh, Labor Day weekend. And I killed my first 5 by 5 branch bull in the exact same spot I had called that 5 by 5 into. Nice. So it was really cool um, for me, that change. And I've learned so much with calling elk since I was 22 years old. I'm 36 now. Um, I mean, the stories of the mistakes I've made could go on for hours. But that, knowing that I could do it, changed my changed my life. You know, I can do this on my own. And I don't have to have somebody... I can call elk. I can do this. I can walk in here and I can hunt. And it was a, just a tremendous moment for me, for sure. Was that a bow kill? Mm-hmm. That was. It was. Nice, nice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've, uh, you kind of grew up with, you kind of grew up hunting elk with your dad and whatnot. Now I'm kind of curious about maybe your first kind of expedition hunt and when i mean i'm talking specifically about maybe a sheep hunt where you know it's one of those one of those hunts where it takes a long time to plan potentially a long time to draw and then um you have to make sure everything is absolutely perfect the weather you know your gear all that stuff so do you have a do you have a story like that yeah so my first backpack trip i took was with brian martin and I went with North River Stone Outfitting, um, Ryan and Maria, or excuse me, Ron and Maria Nemnichek. I actually didn't have a tag. Um, Dr. Bob had a stone sheep tag, and there was a kid named Darren that also had a stone sheep tag, and they both had goat tags. And I drove to Smithers, British Columbia. From Smithers, we took a float plane, got dropped off at their first camp, and then took a second plane and got dropped off at a lake. And I had never backpacked. And I remember I put my backpack on and we started up this hill, straight vertical climb. And I, and I, I don't know if you have much experience with horses, but I, I felt like a horse being rode the first time because the first time you put a saddle on a horse, they're like, what is going on? And they try to buck it off and right. they don't like the weight and they try to get rid of the weight. Mentally, that's what I was going through. Like my body mentally my mind was saying this weight is not natural you need to get this off what are you doing and i'm in i was in good shape i was bodybuilding and and doing competitive i mean i was i'm a very fit person but just getting used to hiking with 65 pounds on your back as you know as a 135 pound woman that's almost half my body weight tough to your body is just like didn't want to do it you know and so after i got over that first day it was pretty much a lot easier. Um, but I spent 13 days with that backpack on straight 
And at the end of that trip, Dr. Bob got a 43 and three quarter inch stone ram, which is in, in the book of, made the book of legends. He also got a 10 inch goat with me. Um, Darren got a ram and a goat. And we had two days left of the hunt. And when Ron picked up those guys, he flew me in a mountain goat tag and said, here, go have fun. Cause he didn't have a quota on goats. And he picked us up and dropped me off at another lake. And Brian took me. And I was able to spot a goat um, on the first day. I had two days to goat hunt. The second day, I killed the goat at like six at night. We got back to camp at one in the morning, and our plane came and picked us up at seven. And it was an unbelievable, the total adventure, I think, was 14 days. Nice. No TV, Un- no running water, nothing like that. No shower. And you know what ticked me <laughs> off about that trip? I'm going to tell you right now. My friend Brian, if you, I don't know if you've ever met him, but you guys Google uh, Asian Mountain Outfitters or Canadian Mountain Outfitters. Brian's an awesome guy. I love him to death. He's one of my best friends. But dude didn't brush his teeth for 13 days. He didn't shower. I brush my <laughs> teeth every day. I took like a little sponge bath. Like I was trying to be kind of like clean you know some semblance of clean and he like ate mosquitoes off his hands when he was glassing and he'd have wings in his teeth and like just a little on the rough side you know and I Brian would not care that I'm telling the story he doesn't care but we flew out and Ron tells me back at camp and he's like Christy I hate to break this to you he's like you don't have the worst B.O out of everybody but you're not the best and i'm like what do you mean i'm like there's somebody that smells less than me and he's like yeah actually you're one of the smellier people and i'm like what and brian the guy that didn't brush his teeth didn't bathe no sponge bath nothing he actually had less body odor than me so i was like are you like what (laughs) i was so offended like completely i don't know why i told you that story but it's really like (laughs) like how did that even happen (laughs) well i tell you what the, the first thing that I thought of when, you know, you said this dude wasn't brushing his teeth was, hey, he's very concerned about every ounce that goes into his pack. So, yeah, well, toothpaste and toothbrushes. Yeah. So there you go. I tell people, if you want to make sure you don't forget something for a hunt, go on Brian's website, print his gear list. He has several gear lists. He has some for horse trips, some for guided backpack hunts, some for self DIY backpack trips on what you should have in your pack. And I literally have 50 copies of his gear list printed out before I leave my house on any hunt ever, anytime I go through every item on his gear list. And if I can check it off, I know I'm going to live. (laughs) There you go. No joke. There you go. He's like the guru, man. So you know how to use it too. Yeah. He gets a little overboard on some of this stuff, but I'm going to tell you, there's some times where you just thank God that Brian has all this crazy stuff. So now, you know, you you do a lot of Western hunting, mountain hunting. Do you ever do any type of, uh, you know, I've seen you with uh, some turkeys as well out West, but do you ever Mm -hmm. make a trip, you know, to the Midwest or to the East Coast for whitetails at all? No, I've shot one whitetail in my life, and that's actually on my list of to-dos. Just the tree stand thing is not... Um, held a lot of interest for me. Right. 
right? I can, uh, I can relate. I mean, I'm, there's a lot of guys that, you know, during the rut, they'll sit all day long and they'll, Mm -hmm. you know, I personally can't do that. I'm not a big fan of sitting all day long, but going from, you know, spot and stock style hunting to the tree stand life, I can see how that would be. It's, it's almost like I should be moving. I should be doing something right or different. You know what I mean? I'm used to hiking my guts out and wanting to die. You know, (laughs) usually, I mean, like the other night I was my last night of, of my bear hunt in Hills Canyon. And I spot this, it's my dream bear. I've never killed a color face bear. The bear was the same color as my dog, just bright red cinnamon. And he's above the mountain goats. And I spent every ounce of my last daylight trying to get to that guy. And I get up there and, you know, he's still, I, I don't, I lose track of where he's at and I'm out of daylight. And now I'm like, crud, I got to get off of here. Sweated through my clothes, miserable. The brush is thick. My knees are swollen. My legs are bruised from falling. I mean, it's just nasty. And I'm thinking, now I got to get off of here. And I got back to camp and it was late and I was tired and beat up. But I, at the end of it, it's like, man, I went out, I went out swinging, you know, like to me, that's going out swinging and, and I just have a hard time sitting. Like I'm used to just beating myself up so physically on my hunt that now when I go home, if I'm not doing CrossFit and I'm not running six miles a day and I'm not doing this stuff, I feel like a blob, you know what I mean? Like my body has just gotten so used to being so active. I would probably gain 15 pounds if I sat in a tree for a month. (laughs) (laughs) People would be like, who is that? (laughs) Oh, I've been tree stand hunting. It's good. It's It's all good. I'm going back to the mountain. good. I got a deer though. I'm good. (laughs) So now I I do want to, I do want to, I need to get, I need to get to the Midwest and do some white tail hunting. I do a lot of turkey hunting and I do a lot of bear hunting, but I, the whitetail thing is just new to me and, and really I need to, I need to, I need to look into doing that. What's your favorite? What's your favorite hunt to go on? I don't have like a favorite cause I like them all, but if I had to choose one animal to hunt, I don't know. So I'm so into hounds now. Um, my best friend has hounds and we run bobcats all winter and that's a whole nother level of addiction. Cause in Oregon <clears throat> we can hunt them all night long. And this year I had to buy a snowmobile because we had six feet of snow. So you want to talk about an adrenaline rush, go out in the middle of nowhere without a road and ride a snowmobile on a mountain in the dark with a pack of hounds turned loose on a bobcat. That is an adrenaline rush. Like, I I don't know. I don't know if I could pick one. Right. I'm, I don't. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, yeah. I I love hunting with a dog. Yeah. Well, turkey hunting, I don't really love turkey hunting. I'm not going to lie. Right, right. It's what I tell my I wife. Mean, there's some people, they live for it, and I don't get it. Right. But. What I tell my wife is I turkey hunt because I can't deer hunt all year round. I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I mm-hmm. can't do that stuff. So that's why I turkey hunt. It's fun. I love it. I, uh, you know, fill the freezer with some meat, but it's not something that I would probably, you know, go across country to do. I upped my turkey game this year, and I learned a really cool strategy from Ralph and Vicky C. and Zerillo in Utah, and it saved my deer year twice this year, turkey hunting. Have you ever heard of fanning turkeys? That's where you get behind it, right? Get behind the yes. fan? Yeah. 
So works real well. Um, I actually bow hunted turkey in Oregon this year, and I, I'm going to tell you guys a sob story of mine because I'm still not over it. And this stuff happens, unfortunately, as hunters. Um, but I had a fan mounted on the stabilizer of my bow, and I spot and stalked this huge tom, biggest tom I've ever shot in my life. And shot him with my bow, and he ran off. I found feathers. I found blood. And I thought, great, he's going to be right here. And I looked for him. Didn't find him that night. I let him go to bed. Next morning, I get up to hear him on the roost tree. He's not on the roost tree. I look for him for two hours. Don't find him. Three days later, as I was hunting my buddy's farm, he called me. He's like, your bird was 30 yards from where you shot it, but it's so thick. In Western Oregon, with the blackberry bushes and the oaks, he had crawled down in this depression, and I didn't see him. And I had to walk by him twenty times, oh. and I lost him, and I didn't get him back. But I mean, I got him back finally. You know, obviously, my buddy yeah. found him. But it, I'm, I'm still, it's haunting me to this day because I'm so upset over it because it was one of the coolest things I've ever done. Was walking, you know stalking a turkey with my bow behind a fan. I mean, it was awesome. And it was such a cool moment for me as a turkey hunter, which I don't like turkey hunting, but this, this was a game changer for me. You know, it was really awesome. And um, I'm never going to forget losing that turkey. I got his beard, but I mean, it was, it's just it's a sad deal for me. And, and as a hunter, whenever stuff like that happens for us. I mean, if it doesn't bother you and it doesn't stick with you, then Christ shouldn't be hunting. I mean, it's something that's supposed to, you know, when animal loses its life, like you want to be most respectful you can to it. And um, I'm still super just sad over it, but it was a revolutionary thing for me as far as turkey hunting, the fanning trick. And I had a girl in Kentucky, we had sat too close to the roost tree my turkeys landed at her feet, and um, she's a, a army um, sergeant, staff sergeant, and the turkeys kind of spooked because she moved, and they went around behind me, and I stuck that fan out and showed them the fan and then flipped it around like Ralph said to do and made it look like the turkey walked away, and they came back and she actually shot one, which was awesome. So the fanning thing, I'm all over that now. That's cool. I think I'm going to try that next year. You hey. got to try it. Hand, hands and knees through a pasture and then try to catch one with my bare hands. Well, you could try that. I don't know if it'll work. You might <laughs> want to shoot it with your bow and arrow, but um, I, I mean, seriously, I was hands and knees crawling after that Tom and it was so cool. I videoed it. Like, I mean, it was awesome. And to have that happen, you know, it's just, it's just something that you have to live with, but you don't ever live right with, you know? Right. Yeah, I think as hunters, uh, if you've never wounded or missed an animal, then you probably haven't been hunting long enough. Well, unfortunately, I didn't wound it. It only went 30 yards. I just couldn't see it. Yeah. Like, it crawled in the brush, and I just, it, you know, I just didn't see it. Yeah. 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 That sucks, things. too. Yeah. So, again, I'm going to change the subject on you. And... uh this time I want to ask you a question in regards to, um, you know, females in the hunting industry and, uh, then, sure. then we can elaborate on, on, you know, this topic just a little bit, but I asked this same question, to, question to, uh, Melissa Bachman, who was on the show earlier this year. And, um, the question is, so, you know, when people watch 
these television shows, they see, you know, a pretty lady and she's out on the mountain and she's hunting or fishing. And, and then, and then the haters come out and the haters, they say, oh man, you take, you take the guide away from her. You take the, you know, basically the, you know, the, the, the main host, which is typically a guy, you know, you take him away, you know, there's no way this woman could go out into the woods and be successful. What, what do you have to say about that? Well, in some cases, that's true. Um, there are some women that are not capable of DIY hunting, and um, that's just a fact. And there are some people that are like me that they can go out and they can DIY hunt and they can get it done. And there's some people that can't. But that doesn't go with gender. That goes with men and women because there's a lot of men on TV that you take the guide away yeah, <laughs> and they're not killing anything either. And I know a lot of guys like that. And it's not a woman or a man thing; it's a human being thing. And and even with me personally, like there's so much about hunting. Like I was telling you in this conversation, I didn't know anything about backpack hunting. And prior to my friend Brian teaching me, I couldn't have gone and done it by myself. I had no idea what to do or what kind of gear to bring or why. And that's why it's really important that we teach people. Now, there are some people that want to learn and that are like me that seek out that information and seek out those opportunities and try to better themselves as an outdoorsman or woman. And there's some people that don't care to. And there's room for all types in this world. That's why they have guides and outfitters out there uh, that people pay to take them to do those opportunities. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Now, in regards to the the hunting industry, uh, we didn't we didn't cover a lot about you know a lot of it in, in this conversation so far. But how did you get your start? Where, how did you get into you know where you know from where you started to where you are today? It all started with nonprofit work, conservation, RMEF, SCI. I started giving seminars. Well, I was regional sales manager for She Outdoor Apparel. I helped them rebrand their company from She Safari to She Outdoor, redesigned the logo with them. And when I was their regional sales manager, I started doing seminars on the West Coast here um, at different sporting goods stores for women so that they would come in my stores and buy hard and soft goods, you know, within the stores to encourage sales. Um, So I started teaching these women things that I learned from my own experiences or from other classes I'd taken and propelled from there. And then I started working with the Elk Foundation. um, And now um, I basically co-host their TV show with Brandon Bates. Um, And then I'm an NRA instructor. So I host a series of tips and tactics on firearms through the National Rifle Association, which is on um, NRA Women's Network. And I'll film another series of those this year. But I'm not this is an information that I'm creating. I seek out training. I train with the best firearms instructors in the world. Um, I train about 4,000 rounds a year, if not more, with my firearm. So I'm an NRA pistol instructor. I'm an NRA refused to be a victim instructor. I'm working on getting my NRA range safety officer and my NRA uh, rifle instructor certificate this summer. Um, I'm training also this summer at Falcor Defense with Clint Walker. Um so I train, I've, in the past, I've trained with Magpul Corps um, in Yakima, Washington, which has a great training facility. Um, so I train in that because my enthusiasm to learn is now something that I can share. 
So then I go around and I take my information and I share it with people. And that's really how my career got started is, is outreach of getting women and kids empowered to, to do what I do and then build the foundation of conservation because hunting is the truest form of conservation. And we're the first conservationists, you know, in the world. And I really, it's important that we teach that message and that brand. And I've been like this since um, my entire adult life. So that's how it got started, I guess. Um, not really sure, you know, what else I can add to that, but that's, you know, everybody has their own path. Some people, their path is like killed 400 inch bull and a bunch of 200 inch deer and I'm great as a hunter or whatever. That's their path. My path is different. My path is outreach and education and land stewardship. And, and so, um, I think it's important that everybody has their own, I think God gives you a purpose and that you, that you follow that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do another podcast called the Wired to Hunt podcast where we talk a lot about conservation and uh, we talk about um, what people can do to help. You know, it, it just, you know, buying a, a hunting license and, and being a hunter, it, it just isn't cutting it anymore. What can, as from a conservation standpoint and in your opinion, what can we do as hunters to do more than what we're already doing? Well, you need to get involved with whatever group that you believe in. For me, that's the National Rifle Association, that's the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, that's the Wild Sheep Foundation, are the primary groups that I work with. Um, I I am looking forward to next year, hopefully, doing more with the Wild Turkey Federation. Um, but there are a lot of really, really good groups out there. On the ground project work is really, really critical because the antis aren't getting on the ground and they're not putting in watershed improvements they're not tearing down old fences the elk are getting stuck in they're not out there doing controlled burns they're not improving this wild wild spaces for wildlife so volunteers are really important on the ground what we really need is young people getting involved in these organizations at the board level at the leadership level to help invigorate the next generation of hunters that are 30 20 and younger to get involved in conservation because it's um, it's really important that we keep this cycle going. I mean, since 1984, RMEF has uh, conserved or enhanced 6.6 million acres. They've opened access to over 800,000 acres. Hunters, as a general whole, between taxation of firearms, ammunition, bows, state hunting license, um, tag fees, things like that, we create 1.6 billion dollars a year for conservation that goes on the ground and we're creating 700,000 jobs across the nation in rural communities just from hunting alone and so people need to know these numbers so when they're talking to the antis that are saying oh well all you do is kill animals you can say oh that's not a fact the 220,000 members of RMEF have conserved 6.6 million acres since 84 what have you what has your group done right. we give 1.6 billion dollars a year towards conservation what has your group done? Oh, I know what your group does. They tie up our court systems with frivolous lawsuits that impede us from wildlife management and wild place management. That's what your group does. You know, yeah. We believe in the North American Wildlife Conservation Model, which is a science-based approach of predator and ungulate management. Because we believe in that, what we have done has increased the numbers of turkeys, bears. There was bears were almost extinct. Bears, elk. You know, RMEF has reintroduced elk into Kentucky. There's now over 10,000 elk. They're hunting them. Those elk are now going into the Carolinas. I mean, this is 
this is huge. People need to know this. They put on your dang boxing gloves, get educated, and throat punch these guys when they come after us. <laughs> but give them the facts. Don't go at them with – you have to go at them with facts and, right. and give it to them because they can't hit back. Right. Right. Hey. That makes a lot of sense, and uh, I agree with you 100%. And uh, now more than ever, we need to to be doing exactly what you just said. Well, NRA has the new Hunters Leadership Forum. It's their second year. NRA is putting on gloves. And you mark my words, in the next couple years, I'm hoping to be a big part of this, but NRA is putting on the gloves, and they're going after PETA. They're going after the Humane Society, all these people that are supposedly protecting all the animals when they're killing 99% of dogs and kitties that they bring in. All of these groups, they're all litigation groups, and, and we're, going, we're going after them. I guarantee it's going to happen. I mean, I don't know what they're doing, but I'm just, this is my opinion. I don't represent the National Rifle Association, <laughs> um, but this is just my opinion. They're going to go after them, and, and we're going to make a splash. And especially if Donald Trump gets elected, which God willing he does, his son, Don Jr., is extremely big on hunting, understands the ins and outs, is in at every major hunting group that I've been at, Don Jr.'s been at there, um, and he's listening to what hunters are saying, and he's passing that on to his dad, and hopefully hopefully we get better management. I know there's a big management issue out there, state versus federal, and there's a lot that goes into that, and we could talk about that for an hour, but bottom line is with these lawsuits from these antis, nothing gets done. Right. Amen. Something has to be done to stop them. And and it starts with us. That's a fact. That's a fact. Well, I tell you what, I've taken up a lot of your time today, and I know you're, right now you're parked on the side of the road. So first off, I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show and not only talking about you, but talking about what we've talked about for the last five, ten minutes in the conservation and, and, and the hunting industry and, and all that good stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, I appreciate being on here and and look forward to coming back soon. And there you have it. Another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Christy for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time. If you want to find out more information about Christy, simply visit ChristyTitus.com. Another huge shout out to all the listeners out there who uh, took the time to download this or click a button or upload or whatever it is that you do or did to uh, listen to this podcast. Thank you very much to Exodus Trail Cameras. And if you guys want to find out more about Exodus Outdoor Gear, uh, visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com. I highly suggest you do. And uh, I think that's it for today. Not too terribly much. You know, if you haven't already, uh, subscribe to the podcast. Visit the blog, NineFingerChronicles.com. That's all spelled out, NineFingerChronicles.com. iTunes, Stitcher, you know. That's where you know you should leave a comment if you like this podcast. Visit me on all the social media that I do. That would be Facebook, Nine Finger Chronicles. Twitter, Nine Finger Chronicles. Instagram, Nine Finger Chronicles. All that stuff. So, uh, yeah, there's that. Thank you guys very much for tuning in. And until next time, wear your damn safety harness.